0: Well, our uh, kids are at the age right now, one of their favorite games to play is hide and seek. I'm sure many of you have enjoyed that uh, in the last few days yourselves, Uh, but I've come to realize the reason kids like to play hide and seek so much is not so much about the hiding, it's about the anticipation and the expectation that someone is coming, someone is coming to find me. And did you know that uh, from the very beginning of the Old Testament, there is that exact same sense of anticipation and expectation, just like the sound of those approaching footsteps when you're in hiding. The story of the Bible from Genesis 3 on is pointing towards someone who is coming. The moment Adam and Eve were uh, kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God promised them that someone would come. And restore all things to new. The prophets spoke over and over again about this someone who would come and restore the people. Establish God's kingdom like King David once did. Who would be like Moses and lead them out of slavery from sin and death. He's coming. We get to the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and he hasn't come yet are still waiting to be found. And about 400 years go by between the end of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, uh, to the beginning of the New Testament, and we hear all of a sudden from the back country of Galilee of all places. I mean, you want to talk about a good hiding place. Somebody is announcing in the desert. Someone has come. He's here. And we're going to talk about the person who made that announcement this morning. His name is John the Baptist. As we continue our series in the Gospel of John that we're calling Encountering Christ. And we're going to see if you're following on your notes, if you use those notes, we hope they are a help to you. But if you follow, that John announces that the long-awaited someone has come. The long-awaited someone has come. If you were here last week, you know Jeff introduced us to this someone in the prologue of John's gospel. This someone is the logos, the eternal word, 100% God, 100% flesh. God sent him to dwell among us full of grace and truth. And this week we actually have our first encounter with with this someone. So take your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 1. We're starting in verse 19 uh, this morning. Hopefully you're getting used to where John is. We're going to be there pretty much the whole year. So uh, it's about four-fifths of the way back in your Bible. It's one of the four Gospels. If you don't have your own Bible, you don't bring one, we want to encourage you as we do every week to grab one of the red Bibles that we provide in the seat in front of you. We want to be first-handers in God's Word here. So it's on page 750. If you're using uh, that Bible, but I encourage you to do that. As you're turning there, let's just take a moment to pray that God would give us that same sense of anticipation and expectation that people had for so many years. Let's pray. Lord, from the moment Adam and Eve hid in the garden, we have been waiting for someone to come and find us. And rescue us. And save us. He has come. And it's in his name we pray now for our time. That we would see him for who he is. And worship him even as we study his word. We pray in Jesus' name together. Amen. Well in 1948, I know some of you can remember that. A remarkable phenomenon occurred in uh, Southern California right near Hollywood in a tent of all places where this young preacher uh, started preaching. At first the crowds were uh, pretty sparse, not many came, but eventually word got around and the crowds grew, grew bigger and bigger and eventually some Hollywood celebrities even started attending these tent meetings. And some of them became Christians as a result. At first, the uh, media could have cared less about this preacher. But once Hollywood got involved, they were all over it, right? So they sent some reporters to investigate this strange preacher who dressed in weird clothes and wore weird ties and spoke in a weird accent. And even they had to come away saying that God was doing something. Evidence of God's work. That was the beginning of whose career? Billy Graham. And as news of those meetings began to spread across the country, other cities started inviting him to come and preach there. And that was the beginning of Billy Graham's ministry. Well, that year was 1948, way back in the first century, long before Billy Graham, there was John the Baptist. He, too, dressed in weird clothes. He wore camel skins and animal skins and he ate weird things. I'm not sure Billy Graham eats weird stuff, but he ate like locusts and wild honey. And at first, when he started preaching, not many came, but eventually they heard of this desert preacher and people started flocking to him by the hundreds and the thousands. They were leaving the city to hear this message from this weird desert preacher. And where we pick up the story in John 1.19, John, we have to understand, is at the peak of his ministry right now. Thousands of people are coming to him, and just like those reporters started getting interested in Billy Graham, you better believe the religious establishment in Jerusalem, because that was the important city, they started getting interested in what was going out there in the back country of Galilee, and so they send out some delegates to go find out what's going on with this guy. Who does he think he is? In fact, again, if you're on your notes with me this morning, the religious leaders want to know who John thinks he is. He didn't go to their seminaries. He wasn't ordained. Who's this guy attracting these large crowds? Who does John think he is? And that's where we pick up the story in John 1:19. Take a look. It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now, why all these questions? What is this all about? Well, there are rumors going around, right? Who is this strange desert preacher? So these investigators show up and they cut right to the chase. We can infer from verse 19, what's the first thing they want to know about John? Are you the Messiah? Are you Messiah? We learned about Messiah last week. Jeff taught us that Messiah literally means anointed one and for centuries, as we read through the Old Testament, the prophets had prophesied that this anointed one, this Messiah who would have God's blessing on him, would come and restore the nation of Israel to their original covenant promises. He would establish Israel and his kingdom to rule throughout the whole world. By the time the first century rolls around, by the way, uh, they're thinking that this Messiah, the Jews were thinking this Messiah, was going to be a powerful military leader or a powerful political figure they had hopes and expectations that he would deliver them from their bondage in Rome they were slaves of Rome at this point and so their expectation was Messiah would come and deliver them in this way and so the people come and they ask John are you Messiah are you going to leave a, lead us out of slavery from Rome and he answers what nope not me so they're like okay well are you Elijah Now, the reason they asked this is because the Jews expected that near the time when the Messiah would come, Elijah would come. In fact, there's a prophecy at the very end of the Old Testament. I mentioned Malachi. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says that Elijah will come again. Now, they took this to literally mean that Elijah himself will show up on the scene. You know, Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven, so they thought, whoop, he'd appear. And so, are you literally Elijah, they asked John. And he says, no, though Jesus tells us later. He came with the same power and authority and spirit as Elijah. And then finally, they ask him, are you the prophet? And here they're referring to the someone who was coming according to Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Take a look at this verse up on the screen with me. It says, the Lord your God, this is Moses speaking, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own brothers. You must Listen to him. John answers again, I am not the prophet. In fact, ultimately, what are they asking John here? They're asking him if he's the someone they've been waiting for. And John proclaims, if you're on your notes, that he is not the source of God's salvation. He is not the someone they have been waiting for. He is not the source of God's salvation. Well, they're exasperated at this point. Look at verse 22. Finally, they said, well, who are you then? I made that last part up, but I can tell they're frustrated. Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Well, Let's read out loud together what John does say about himself. In verse 23, it says, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. I'll continue in verse 24. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. If you're on your notes again, John says he's simply a voice. He's simply a voice for the word that's come. Capital W-O-R-D, for the word that's come. If you were here last week, I hope you don't miss John's reference. The word, the eternal logos, 100% God, 100% human has come, and John says, I am but a voice. For that word. Now, what's a voice in comparison to a word? A a voice is fleeting. A voice is fading. A voice doesn't last. And that is exactly how John views himself and his ministry, right? I am merely a fading voice that's crying out in the desert, preparing you for the arrival of the word. I'm going to assume most of you at some point in your life have been to a concert. And, you know, you show up, let's say the concert starts at 7, they don't just send out the main act right away at 7 o'clock, do they? They want to get us, like, ready and prepared and warmed up, so these poor opening acts have to come out and try to get the crowd excited. Well, I kind of view John like the opening act band. He is preparing us for something even better, something we're anticipating and expecting someone who has been promised to us since the very beginning. In fact, John says, as you see it? He's here. He's here. You know what I love about John? He always moves the emphasis away from himself. Always. And points to Christ. Much more on that later. But notice the very next day, starting in verse 29, this is our first encounter. You know, we titled this series, Encountering Christ. Well, here is our first encounter with this someone, this Christ. And if you're following on your notes, in John's encounter with Christ, we are told who this someone is. Let's look at how John describes him in verses 29 through 35. And let's start by reading verse 29 out loud together. It's on your notes. Would you do that? It says... Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now we read in places like Isaiah 53 that though Jesus was equal with God, there was nothing about him as a human being that made him extraordinary. You know, we think about, you know, he probably had these stunning good looks. Crowds were just drawn to him. I mean, after all, he had a halo everywhere he went, right? He dressed in a gold robe. and No, he, he didn't have any of that. People would have no reason to recognize him. And yet, if you're on your notes, when John encountered Christ, he sees four things. Four things that this is, in fact, the someone they've been waiting for. Number one, when John encountered Christ, he said he is the lamb, the lamb who will remove our sin. The lamb who will remove our sin in verse 29. Like if you're an underliner, that'd be a pretty good one. Because Jesus hasn't even spoken a word yet in the gospel of John, and yet we have the entire essence of the Christian gospel in one phrase look the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world now you know we live in western culture that would have meant that doesn't mean a whole lot to us but just I'm just telling you if we were Jews in the first century and John pointed to this guy and said look the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world there would have been an avalanche of meaning that would have come to us I mean, for example, we might have thought all the way back to Genesis 22 when Abraham is asked to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and they get to the mountain, and Isaac says, Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And you remember Abraham's words to his son. Let's read them out loud up on the screen. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Who of them went t- together. Excuse me. He did. Look. The Lamb of God. who Takes away the sin of the world. Uh, maybe instead of Genesis 22, we would have thought about the Passover Lamb. You remember uh, that story, you know, uh, the Israelites are about to be set free from their bondage of slavery and death in Egypt. And God tells them they are to sacrifice a lamb and paint the blood on their doorposts. So when the angel of death came and slew the firstborn of the Egyptians, he would pass over their homes. We know from John two fifty or 23 that the Passover feast is just around the corner here in this, in this setting. So I wonder if they wouldn't have been thinking about that. John says, look, the Passover lamb who will provide a way for us to be free from sin and death forever. Or perhaps we would have thought if we were Jews listening to John's statement, thought to Isaiah 53. I already mentioned it, but you remember these words. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Now look at this. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know what? We may have just simply thought about the fact that every day in Jerusalem at the temple, a lamb was offered morning and night to cover our sin. Whatever image arose among these people, when John spoke these words, the point was clear. Here's the someone. Here's the someone all these prophecies were pointing to. And he will be sacrificed in order to take away our sin. We will be made right with God. Second, when John encountered Christ, he said he is the one who existed before time. He is the one who existed before time. In verse 30, uh, it's easy to miss this, but look at what John says there. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because what? He was before me. Well, that's weird because John's older than Jesus. So he must mean something Else here, well, quite simply, he's referring back to what we learned last week in the very beginning of this gospel, right? John 1, 1 and 2, you remember it? In the beginning was who? The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning as John encounters Christ. He says he's existed before time. He is the eternal Word. I am but a voice. By the way, this is a claim Jesus will make many times in this gospel. Third, when John encountered Christ, he says he is the Messiah ushering in God's kingdom. He is the Messiah ushering in God's kingdom. Look back at verse 32. Uh, This is a little confusing when we first read it, but let's unpack this. It says, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is going on here? Well, uh, in ancient Israel, when a king was coronated, a prophet would come and anoint that king with oil. It was a, a symbol that they are the anointed one. So what's going on here is that when John baptized Jesus, what did he see? He wasn't anointed with oil. What was he anointed with? The very Spirit of God. And for John, this is a clear symbol that he is in fact Messiah. The one we have been waiting for. He has been anointed by God's Spirit himself. Now what kind of Messiah he's going to be? We don't know yet, do we? I mean, we know. But they don't. Is he going to be a military conqueror? Uh, Is he going to establish Israel once again as the dominant nation throughout the world like it was during King Solomon's reign? What kind of kingdom is Messiah going to have? Well, we know the answer Uh, to many people's disappointment. And by the way, we'll see a great example of this in John 6. I mean, the people are disappointed because Christ's kingdom isn't about any of those things. His kingdom doesn't deal with those external things like power that we think are so important in our society. Rather, his kingdom deals with the internal things that have set us apart from God since the very beginning and have set us apart from each other. Here's God's idea of how he establishes his kingdom with Messiah. He wants to take up residence in individuals' hearts. He wants me to say, I give up my little kingdom of Steve, and I allow you now to be my king And my Lord, and He takes up residence in there. It's what Paul calls the mystery of Christ in me, the hope of glory. And as He does that in me, as He does that in you, He starts His revolution from the inside out. That's His kingdom, that's how it's coming. Finally, when John encountered Christ, He tells us He is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. From the very beginning, people wondered, who is the someone? Who is possibly going to be the someone who can come and rescue us? And the answer is only God himself could. Only God himself could do what we could never do. This is what John sees when he encounters Christ. Now, I, I don't know about you. If you've read through the Gospels much, but John the Baptist is one of my heroes. Uh, He teaches us a lot today, I think, in our culture especially, about how we need to encounter, come to Christ. How do I encounter Christ in my life today? I mean, wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you at least give me this? If there was ever a person who had the temptation to exalt himself, it would be John. I mean, it must have been uh, really hard. In fact, if you're following, John could have easily exalted himself instead of Christ. John could have easily exalted himself instead of Christ. I mean, he could have talked about his miraculous birth. Let me tell you about that story. It was like angels and stuff. He could have talked about the crowds that were coming. I mean, do you see? People like me. He could have talked about his gifting. The fact that he is a prophet. Those things are all true. And yet, his whole life, he always remembered who he was not. He always remembered who he was not and what his role was. He remains his whole life totally unaffected by his success. He doesn't want the spotlight at all. He wants Jesus to be center stage. In fact, John would later say, he must become greater. I must become less. That was his understanding of life. I thought of a way to illustrate this. How many of you know what this is? Go ahead, you can tell me. A laser pointer, right? Okay, trick question. What is the purpose of a laser pointer? To point. You get that, laser pointer? It's to point away from itself towards something else. So show that slide for me. So the purpose of a laser pointer would be to point here. I want you to see Christ. Now, what if the laser pointer decided one day, though, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of pointing to other things. I want people to look at me, so start going, woo, yeah. I've seen, you, I've seen people do this, by the way, mostly high schoolers. <laughs> <laughs> now, what happens to your focus on that word? You're drawn away from it, right? You know, another interesting parallel here is any time I turn around here, what happens? I lose my purpose of pointing to Christ. John understood none of this. My whole life is about that. In fact, if you're following there, again, on your notes, John's life was all about pointing others towards Christ. It's all he wanted. John understood, maybe better than anyone in history, that he's first and I am second. Or if you're following, again, John understood to encounter Christ today, we too must take second place. You know where I get that from? Uh, Have any of you heard of this campaign uh, called I Am Second? Uh, It's a great, uh, check it out, Google it. It's an internet campaign where they're interviewing like athletes or celebrities and just normal people as well. And just telling their testimony of how Christ has come and impacted their lives. But at the end of each of these testimonies, I'm telling you, these are worth watching. But at the end of each of them, they look right into the camera, whoever it is, and they say, gladly, I am second. Meaning, Christ is first place in my life, and I gladly take a back seat. I gladly take second place. Well, John is like the ultimate of that to me, Right? I am second, and I love it. I wouldn't want it any other way. And I ask as we kind of wrap this up this morning, how could he get to the point where he says, I am second, and I don't want it any other way. More importantly, how do we make sure we can encounter Christ ourselves that way today? So as I look at John and this story specifically, I noticed three things that allowed him to be second. And these three things apply to us today as well. If you're following like John, we become second, number one, by admitting who I am not and who Christ is. By admitting who I am not and who Christ is. The people come, the religious people come, and they ask him, are you the Messiah? Nope. Elijah? "Uh Uh-uh. The prophet? Nope, none of those things. I'm just a voice. I don't even consider myself worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. That's like lower than a slave. John knew who he was in comparison to who Christ is. And it was because he was able to see that when Jesus arrived, he was able to receive him in those ways. Friends, have you ever admitted who you are not? That you are not God. Even though you sure try to live like you are, even though I sure try to live like I am, that we cannot earn God's love or approval or favor no matter how big the crowds get, no matter how successful my life looks on the outside. Have you ever come to Christ? Have you ever done it? Acknowledging completely and totally that I am spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing inside of myself, and I am in need of someone to come and find me and save me. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who come to the absolute end of themselves, recognize their inability to please God on their own efforts. Blessed are those who say, I am second. When we do that, when we acknowledge before God who we are not, that's when he will reveal himself to us. Not before. If you don't know the Lord, you've been coming to church your whole life, I'm not sure. Do I really know him? Is it because perhaps you have never confessed who you are not and who he is? If you're on your notes, if you want to encounter Christ, I ask you, have I confessed that I'm spiritually dead without Christ? John knew he was nothing. He knew he was not. But he knew who Christ was. Number two, the second way we can declare I am second is by repenting of my former way of life. Repenting of my former way of life. man. I, read, the, read the other sections of the gospel sometimes where it talks about John the Baptist, you know? Thousands of people. Flocking to come hear him preach. And what is his message? Repent. Woo. That'll draw a crowd. And yet it did draw a crowd. Why? Because people knew. People knew. They came by the thousands because they know I'm lost. I've tried it on my own. My former way of life. It's just not working. I need someone to come and find me and help me. And friends, even though this message is not popular at all today in our society, it's still the message we preach, isn't it? Repent. It just means turn away from going your own way. Turn away from your former life. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your hiding places. From your shame. And turn towards the one who wants to find you. Give you life and hope and forgiveness and peace and truth and love and set you free. Repent. Look, John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's our message still today. That is our hope. Still today, and I ask you, have I repented of my sin and received his forgiveness? I'm not just talking about the time you swore to Aunt Mamie. Have I repented of my sin, my turning my back on God, my hiding from him, my living my own life, and turned towards him and received his forgiveness? Three The third way we declare that I am second, like John did, is by offering my life to point others to Christ. I mean, that's the end of it, right? I come to the end of myself. I confess. I repent. And now I offer my life back to him to point others to Christ. Over and over again, John said, Christ is what matters, not me. Don't look at me. I'm just a laser pointer. Even though I didn't have him back then. Look at Christ. Please. There's a story of a famous conductor who had just finished conducting Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And the crowd is going crazy. I means standing ovation, minutes upon minutes upon minutes. Finally, he looks down at his orchestra and he says, I am nothing. Beethoven is everything. And in a similar way, as followers of Christ, we stand out in this world by saying, I am nothing. Jesus Christ is everything. The Apostle Paul, following in John's footsteps, would write in 1 Corinthians 4, one. Take a look at the screen. This is how one should regard us as servants. How are people supposed to look at us as Christians? As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God here. The word Paul uses of servant, it describes an under rower. It's the kind of slave that would row in the galley of a ship. They were unseen, but they are essential to get the ship where it needed to go. Similarly, we are under rowers, aren't we? Of the greatest message ever told, and as such, we offer our lives to point others to Christ, not to ourselves. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, read this out loud, this is our message. For we do not preach ourselves. That's what we preach not here, here. The question as we close this morning is, will I exalt myself? Will I exalt myself? Or will I I use my life to exalt Christ? Friends, when we encounter Christ in these ways, that's when we can truly say, I am second. Can you say that this morning? Let's say it together. I am second and I sure hope you're glad about that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how we need John the Baptist to speak into our lives today. In this me-centered society in which we live in, I need to hear messages like this every day. I am second. Jesus Christ is first. I am nothing. But he is everything. So we freely confess that to you now. We admit who we are not. We repent of our former way of life. And Lord, it's my sincerest hope and desire that as your church, we offer ourselves now. To point others to the lamb who was slain for the sin of the world we prepare our hearts now for communion, remind us again and again exactly who you are, who we are not, and yet who you have made us to be. Amen.